Hey guys, what's up? I'm Shoma. And I'm Tiffany. And you're listening to Chai Tea Party. This is a podcast about the underdogs, the brave, the creative, and the slightly off in the Daisy community. But yeah, give us like the lowdown. Like, how old are you? You're married. You just mm-hmm. recently got married. Oh, congratulations! Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay, so I mean, in terms of like um, how I got to narratives, maybe that may be a good way to frame it. Mm-hmm. Um, Why don't you tell us what it is first? Actually, well, narratives of pain is well. Now it's a nonprofit. Uh, became a nonprofit about two months ago. Um, it is sort of where entertainment and healing meet. Um, maybe a better way to say it is where expression, like an art in expression, and healing meet. Um, and I use like um, art and expression loosely, uh, not in in the sense of uh, like a painting or music, um, just by what it means to sort of narrate unapologetically about like what's coming from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of use art um, in, in a broader way. So it's where that and healing meet. Um, so there are already things like that, um, you know, AA um, definitely functions as a storytelling space for people where other people are a witness. Um, and uh, so we got a lot of our cues about narratives of pain from things like um, AA um, and from but actually even like some old 70s um, Saturday Night Live, um, because at that time, it was part of a very progressive movement in New York. It was on television, but it was a lot of these young comedians, um, specifically the women that were on the first couple casts, they wanted to address what was going on politically. And so, you, you know, you'll see like a lot of sort of um, s- slower pace, um, like and not like just rushing from one skit to a next um, from the earlier episodes. But of course, like we don't take all of our cues from something like that. But I liked that. I liked how the audience was engaged. I liked the intimacy of it. And so from that, Saturday Night Live, Moth Stories, um, there are a lot of different, a lot of different things. And so narratives really is public community uh, therapy. Now there are a lot of spaces that do that. There are some things that make ours unique. We don't allow dialogue. So what I mean by that is that if a survivor gets on stage and tells a story, it's there's no banter. There's no what do you mean by that? There's no question and answer. Um, so that allows the storyteller to talk as much or as little as they'd like on that day, and without it being hijacked by anybody else. The audience member doesn't have to agree uh, with what's going on, but they're not allowed to interrupt the processing because it is th- it's like therapy. There are other spaces that do it with dialogue, but you know that going in. And that has a very different type of healing than, um, interaction is a very different type of healing than on a sort of just making people witness to what you're doing. So yeah, uh, we, um, we basically just have unapologetic storytelling about what people are having pain about. We struggle with the name for a while um, because people oh, that's really deep and, and heavy pain. Uh, but then eventually we embraced it because... I think like that's what we're talking about. That's what makes our space different. And because narratives of healing sounds really cheesy, so mm-hmm. we went with narratives of pain. Um, so yeah, it's a storytelling space. Um, we try to make it safe. And as we talk more, like I can maybe go into some other things. But the aesthetics, we think about the amount of storytellers that we have um, that are predetermined. Uh, we think about um, we have about four to six 
Uh, we don't make it the whole program because um, the la- latter half of the show is people who get courage by watching everybody else, and then they go on stage. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so it, it's like an open mic. I struggle to say that word because it has a performance connotation, mm-hmm. but this is like people who like want to get up and, and, and do that. So, But you have to have some predetermined people because you have to give content, something for people to respond to, mm-hmm. some sort of stimulus for people to respond to. And there's a, I see the storytellers that are predetermined as people who are volunteering to be brave um, in the beginning. And maybe they were... Um, uh, you know, audience members at a previous show. Or maybe they've been waiting for, a, or maybe on the other end, they've been waiting for any space where they can tell their story. So that's what it is. Um, our tagline is um, sort of, um, you know, telling stories of the unheard. It's one of our taglines, but our main one is um, healing through the telling and witnessing of stories. So That is very neat. Yeah. So right now you guys have one show that's set up for September 16th, which is a Friday. It's Friday. Oh, six days from today. Cool. Are you guys going to try and eventually have this be something that's reoccurring monthly? Or is it like kind of just what are you like hoping for in the long run? Well, we've been sort of learning about the show and what it does to people as it developed. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a shot in the dark. I was a director of um, the Tunnel of Oppression at MSU for about seven years. In the begin- it, I'm, I need to sort of talk about that to frame this real quick. Um, Tunnel of Oppression was a student-written thing that happened every year at MSU, and it was like this whole process, and people would uh, submit stories, write stories, and you couldn't uh, either write or um, perform a story if it didn't have anything to do with your social location. So like, for example, if you weren't a survivor of something, you couldn't like just pretend you were, unless like there was some sort of synergy, somebody who wrote it or somebody, you know, that sort of thing. If you're talking about racism on campus, you couldn't be white, like something like that, just to kind of be honest about it. And so we did that for a long time. Um, And, but what happens is people, after they do something heavy like that, or vagina monologues is another example, you know, where you're, taking reclaiming something and you're talking about the pain that's included you're talking about the respite also that's included in that journey and you know no one else should be speaking for you um because it's your thing you know it's like if you had a stomach ache i can't come off like from the left and be like hey you don't really have a stomach ache that's your feeling uh so similarly i think the emotions emotions are the same uh trauma is the same so yeah but people need to process after afterwards because it's really heavy and, um, you know, so you can't do that every day. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you can, with narratives, it levels up. With Tunnel, there would be people who were doing scripts. Every so often you knew that that was that person's own story. But a lot of times it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they had some uh, personal stake in the story. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, in Tunnel, like, if you're talking about being black and the person's story is somebody who's incarcerated, I mean, they can't, they're not here to tell the story so that was okay narratives uh, levels up because we only do the person who is experiencing it that's it there's no script and it's just raw it's right there there's something definitely more powerful about it when you're hearing it organically from somebody yeah it's certainly it's certainly differently uh, powerful Um, and so we found I know that I said a lot but I uh, you know I learned from the tunnel experience and from the first year and a half of narratives that we can't do this all the time. And not just because it's heavy, I think also because when you do it a lot, it becomes a spectacle. Um, You want to make these things intimate. Uh, You know, I don't see my therapist every day, right? Because I need to process my last session. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, just like, you know, when you just had a meal, your body needs to take care of it. You don't, uh, you know, just keep, you know what I mean? I think that... Oh, you don't keep eating? That's my whole word. Well, okay. <laughs> I need to be fair. I do keep eating, um, especially if I'm stressed out. Um, but, um, no, but I think, like, you know, I, you have to allow things to process. And, and it loses so. its impact, too, if you do it, like, mm-hmm. three times a week, you know, because yeah. people aren't going to always come, or it mm-hmm. takes a toll on them if they do try to come every time. And, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Definitely. I, I think we've settled on um, every two or three months. Cool. Yeah, we've settled on every two or three months. Um, a lot of it has been when you're a new pro- uh, nonprofit, um, and even right before you become a nonprofit, uh, funding, you know, or like where you can you do, where can you do this for free? And you're doing it, um, you know, uh, we have four board members, and then, you know, we have like people, sort of a second tier that helps us with um, flyers and our ambiance and like, you know, other things. And um, I think like when you're when you have limited resources and you're not making it homework, you're, it's something that's passionate, and it has to be when you're not getting paid. <laughs> it's got to be meaningful to you. Cheers to that. <laughs> um, uh, hashtag chai tea party. Um, <laughs> but I think um, you know then you know you're not going to be able to do it every every month anyway. Mm-hmm. But we learned that that was better. Yeah. Our last show was six months ago. That's the biggest gap that we've had. Part of it is that um, the uh, it was sort of born out of the Muslim community. It wasn't. It wasn't for the Muslim community. But I think a lot of times, <clears throat> when you're, when somebody of a certain social location is doing something, um, what brews out of it immediately is that person's network. Right. And so we actually did this at the annual Muslim Mental Health Conference. Mm-hmm. I was a, a, one of the directors on that nonprofit as well. Um, I'm not anymore, but I, I was. And. Um, you know, my job was to do creative, non-academic sessions at the conference, and so I brought narratives. That was like the way for us to do it, and because that way we don't have to pay for it. <laughs> and so we did it, and MSU paid for it. Um, uh, I don't know if they know that, um, but I <laughs> cut that part out. Right. No, <laughs> no, they're not listening anyway. Um, but uh, no offense. <laughs> but but um, I think I think that um, you know that that's where it kind of brewed out of that, and but it's sort of. I mean, our board isn't all Muslim. Uh, it's not for that. It really has a healing frame. Um, you begin with the community that's around you, and then eventually it sort of um, germinates into other places. Um, our third show was at a dry bar in Ann Arbor, really dry bar, uh, which is, is not um, continuing forward right now, but it was this really cool space where people who are recovering or people who don't drink uh, but want to still engage socially, um, a lot of times we have this dichotomy, right? Like, okay, like, you got to go nuts, and that's fun, and, and, and if you're, like not going nuts then you're um definitely like you gotta stick up your butt and and um we we sometimes we participate in those dichotomies and i think that that spaces like that or like a refusal of that um you know you can't undermine somebody in recovery what they can't have fun anymore Mm -hmm. right so uh when you know that's a trigger they came and we thought oh cool synergy we're telling stories about pain and recovery Mm -hmm. why not do it there so our third show opened it up to the recovery community now they knew about narratives um and our fourth show was at the dia um, so eventually, um, you know, yeah, like I think a lot of my, my personally, a lot of my, you know, you can't divorce your own um, reasons for things, like your own like spiritual reasons for things. Mm-hmm. But like the um, the group's uh, existence is not a religious one, but it was born out. Of, it was born out of a of a space that was a specific religious community. But it, it you know. Yeah. When was your first show? When did you guys first start doing this? It show? was March something something 2015. <laughs> Um, okay. Yeah, and That's then the second one was in June, and then October, and then January, and then our last one is last March. 
Okay. So very cool. Yeah. There's a lot of things that rung true for us too with what you said. I, like a couple people I've talked to even recently have been struggling with wanting to attend therapy, and they've mentioned like you know they talk to people about they want to they have all these feelings, but when they talk to people about it, they've given the response that like your feelings aren't that big a deal, like there are people dying in the world and suffering, and that minimizes everything. And I think that this is great that you get this platform to to really feel what you're feeling and be allowed to you know have those emotions. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people get shot down when they do try to bring those things to the surface. So that's mm-hmm. I think that's great. And even with the sh- you know with the show when we talk about personal things or we have people come on that talk about the things that aren't nice to talk about it helps like them kind of deal with things as well but it helps people to hear it that okay like there's other people out there going through something or Mm -hmm. i've been through a similar situation or whatever it is that case is Mm -hmm. um so i think this is very cool like when we saw this it was just something that really Mm -hmm. right because we were already talking about it she's like did you hear about narratives pain i said no Mm -hmm. like this is perfect about what we've been Mm -hmm. talking about what we stand for and you know Mm because it's such a great thing to like she said have a safe safe space for it Mm -hmm. you know because why aren't we doing that more? You know, because yeah. there are so many people that do want to talk about it, but there's just not the opportunities to do that. So, yeah, yeah. props and to you. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah. I appreciate the support. Um, and, and you know, I hear that a lot. The whole you know, and that was one of our concerns is like if somebody who's a survivor of something uh, tells a story, an unapologetic story. Um, there's sort of two ends. One, if somebody performs their story really well, or if there's somebody who's really talking about like series of um, tra- trauma mm-hmm. that they've experienced then other people who are also struggling they get shy and they say well that person really performed their thing well so I don't want to go up or right. that person's life is harder than mine and I don't want to go up I think the problem with that is that people struggling in the world are looking for spaces to heal and so you got one and then you don't do anything like you know you know that's one another pushback against it but I think a better pushback against that kind of thinking is all right so if like I don't have a foot and it's true that other people are dying somewhere else. So I just, like, leave my foot that way. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it makes no sense. Like, you know, if somebody's got the, the this isn't my quote, but we say it a lot in the, in the mental health world is, um, if I have a scar and yours is bigger, yours being bigger doesn't make mine go away. Right. And privilege certainly exists. But that's not how it operates. Privilege doesn't operate that way. Privilege operates in structures where people refuse to help people that don't have stuff. Right? It doesn't mean like, oh, when I'm ailing, community doesn't have water, so I should dehydrate myself for the rest. Like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, You'll die. So, like, you have to, you know, that's just sort of, um, it's honestly, and I think that the people that often say those things um, a lot of times are um, afraid to be, and I don't mean to undermine them. I mean, it's difficult. It's a struggle to confront their own pains. Mm-hmm. Like, what does it mean that if you have spent your entire life um, and the method of resilience has either been taught to you or reinforced is like, get over it, get over it, get over it, get over it. And then to suddenly, when you see somebody else being vulnerable, it strikes a chord in you because that's what you refuse to do your whole life. And by contrast, you get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So what comes out of your mouth? Well, you can get over it. Mm-hmm. So it's so much easier to be in denial and not do anything about that. Not easier, but yeah. it seems it seems that yeah. Way. I don't think it's conscious too. I think it's a comfort thing, right? You know? yeah. 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 So, I, and I think you know th- that type of thinking. I don't want to. I don't want to trivialize those people or, or judge them. I think right. that I think it's born out of um, you've survived that way, mm-hmm. right? To to sort of um, 
not because at some point in life to be vulnerable is really scary and what if the people around you um, if you're going to be vulnerable with them it's going to hurt way more right mm-hmm. so we keep our hearts to ourselves that's what we do right mm-hmm. um, but that's also what sucks about that is then you start telling yourself that you're not worth loving not worth healing and all these other narratives come with it or um, you you put those things into you focus on the wrong things then then you think that like there's something wrong with me because of right. this instead of realizing what the what the problem is mm-hmm. um, like you said, or being judged or telling, you know, being told that your feelings aren't real or they're not as important as, you know, something something else is happening. Yeah. If, if I tell myself 100% of the time that I need to get over it, that means when somebody else does something that's in their control and not mine, mm-hmm. I will quickly assign it to myself because I'm the one that needs to get over it. Right. So then you have no semblance of reality and what other people, other people's responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be the most healing thing in the world to say nope that was that other person that wasn't me and I don't know um, you know I think a lot of our stories um, that narrative so far um, have been about sort of reclaiming how we feel yeah heck yeah yeah I'm all about that I remember being at Michigan State and actually seeing Tunnel Depression um, it must have been like my freshman or sophomore year there and being like so in awe just because I'd never seen anything like it before and I grew up as like somebody that was very reserved, like I kept everything to myself. Mm-hmm. I never knew people to be so like outspoken or be honest about things like that. So I was totally rattled after I saw it. Mm-hmm. It's like unbelievable. They had this whole, you guys were in like the union in this one giant room and there's like just a maze that you go through. Mm-hmm. And then at different points, people like tell their story. And mm-hmm. it's just like this very, like the lighting is dark and there's like just spotlights and it's just unbelievable the way that mm-hmm. they did it. Mm-hmm. It's cool to see people even just in our community and people in general kind of standing up and doing something about this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that there's enough people that even realize what's going on with themselves. Um, then for some people like to, to know that and to be able to stand up and do something about it, I think it's very neat. Definitely. We need it for sure. Yeah. I think the public space also allows people to kind of like sort of bring themselves in by the threat of oh this might be entertaining or whatever it is mm-hmm. um, so that they don't feel like they're going to therapy mm-hmm. I mean I'm, I'm a therapist so I definitely advocate for people to go to therapy um, and we have this huge stigma that oh you're crazy if you're going mm-hmm. to therapy or you're admitting that you're weak um, if right, you go to yeah. therapy but there are some physiological reasons that we become postpartum depression mm-hmm. like pollution um, you know what you eat and then on top of that like people interact and people's insecurities interact with other people's insecurities all over the place every day so sometimes you need a breather I don't know anything else in life where you don't need a space to reclaim yeah. like you breathe out you breathe in your heartbeat goes back and forth uh, it rains and stuff comes up from the ground so like but you know what our emotions <laughs> they're, they're just gonna sit there right. and then it brews and it brews and it brews and then something becomes volcanic Right, a lot of people who keep things in, that stuff's eventually going to come out anyway. Right, you people get like anyway. ulcers, like stress ulcers, yeah. mm-hmm. and sick from that stuff. It's, you know, or you might project on the pain. wrong person. Right, right, it shows up. It doesn't go anywhere. If you don't heal about something, it's not going to magically go away right. in a really important relationship in your life or in the next stage or phase in your life. Mm-hmm. And people do a lot of things, and um, and I say this with a lot of compassion. Uh, I myself as well, but a lot of people do a lot of things to keep that stuff down because it's so vulnerable, so mm-hmm. hard um, to. Um, to bring it to bring it to light so yeah yeah it's funny because um, even with therapy like 
I still actively go to therapy, Tiffany's been to therapy, mm-hmm. and we're like very big advocates of it, mm-hmm. and like anyone can benefit, it's not like it's going to ruin your life, like mm-hmm. it's something great that you can do, but I always like tell people to go, but when I finally, my friends were telling me like, you should go to therapy, I was like, I don't need that, I'm totally fine, mm-hmm. like, you guys are the ones that actually need it, but you know, it's it's different when the tables are turned on yourself. Absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. um, yeah, definitely. So go to therapy. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. And, and I think, like, you know, I as a therapist, I see a large spectrum of people. There's some people that are um, struggling with liking themselves, and that manifests in a lot of um, destructive things, um, you know, where they're in danger. But on the other end, I you know, there's people that might come and see me um, once a month or, um, you know, every two weeks, and things are fine. It's just a place for, for respite. You know, a lot of times, young people, they don't always control their uh, day-to-day, like where there are school, like maybe they're living with their parents, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and you don't always have a place of respite. And so if you have one that's yours unapologetically and it happens once a week, I mean, people do that anyway when they get on a, and I don't mean, again, I'm not trying to undermine, but people do that anyway when they get on like a like really hip tip, mm-hmm. yoga, Zumba, right, right, whatever it is. It's just like that you you're going to a place that's yours um so that you can heal and breathe and you know i think the one thing that's unique about therapy is that you can confront your traumas and heal about them and but i think that narrative is what it does is it doesn't wait around for everyone to personally challenge the stigma it invites everybody in the community wherever you're at um and you don't you know you can participate as much or as little as you'd like mm-hmm. as a storyteller or wit- or somebody witnessing so what do you what is your um response been like from the Muslim community or the basic community or just in general like people of color who aren't used to having outlets like this or for mm-hmm. this being something that's okay to do? I have two responses to that okay. and in the spirit of what I'm saying I'm going to be unapologetic about what I'm saying. <laughs> I'll start with the good stuff. Um, for the people that are supportive of things like narrative they say they don't say oh like that storyteller they performed really well. They say you guys need to keep doing this. They say, you guys need to keep doing this. And that might be their healing, too, to say it like that. Um, you know, you guys need to keep doing this. And there's some people who have been hesitant about coming to the space, and they said, you need to keep doing this. Uh, we've had storytellers that are, um, you know, like religious clerics, imams. Oh. You know, we've had storytellers that um, were mothers that uh, had rough pregnancies, and then afterwards people would be like, well, your baby's born, so you should be thankful. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait, like, what? And then so, like, you know, we've had storytellers talk about being incarcerated. We have storytellers talked about their parents were falsely incarcerated. I won't ever reveal the identities of, obviously, these yeah. people. Um, but I think, like, when that solidarity is there, when people know that they're healing, and then, you know, um, that's that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, the Muslims that are, are the South Asian people that are in the, you know, you know, the radio crowd or the art crowd or whatever it is, they're a little bit less reserved um, about those types of thing things. And I think that the, the Muslim community that was there when we first launched it, were, they were also at a mental health conference. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, there's that. So there's right, already... Initial barriers already mm-hmm. kind of broken down. Absolutely. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, people tussle with it, right? Like, you can, like, go to therapy and then still be reserved while you're in the room. Like, it's a struggle, but I think that definitely that tidbit of telling yourself, okay, like, this is real. Mm -hmm. There is a community for that. And I think specifically um, people who are in contexts where you cannot cover up how much pain there is, what does it mean to be black and Muslim and a woman and single parent, right? 
that's there's like this social erasure by the media about like black folks who are Muslim. Mm -hmm. It's one third of the Muslims in the United States. It's one third. So that's a community that not only experiences the stigma of being Muslim, but experiences the stigma of um, you know what it means to be responding to police brutality, right? What it means to um, protest silently, but everyone says you're being mm -hmm. rageful and vengeful, right? Mm -hmm. right? Right. And they wait for the guy that's like going to do that, and then they couple you in, right? Because it becomes this narrative, and like so. There's that community, and you know when you're around that community, and some of them happen to be social workers of working in you know community services, and they see the, their lives every day. They're not sitting there like, um, yeah, but like, you know, we should just not talk about it. Like, the, there's a there's a little bit more uh, raw, and I don't mean to tokenize that community by saying that. Um, I think that there are pockets of people, depending on their situation, that they're sick of like covering it up because they can't. It's it's mm -hmm. taken a toll on them, and and they're and there's a rage there. Um, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of our storytellers have been women, similarly, right? Um, because of that, you know, just being operating in patriarchal systems and like within your own community, you're being policed and outside of that, you're being policed, right? Um, and so when when there's like sort of a social location, the, you know, I, I guess to respond to your situation, uh, to your question, um, is that there is a huge uh, group of people that are supportive. Now I'm going to say the bad stuff. If you call out people who are well-intentioned, who are in the way of things like a radio show or therapy or, I don't know, um, a child maybe going into a different profession that doesn't give you debt, um, <laughs> you know, um, he's like something other than some sort of social image. I gotta say, like the derailing in the conversation, the the different methods to um, stop things um, from progressing, they happen. They happen. People just don't want to lose their seat. Uh, they don't. They don't want to lose, um, you know, the positions they've had, the respect in the community, and they start like talking about the respect in the community as they're opposing you too, right. and like that kind of stuff. I'm being like vague because. There's a lot of different things, and I don't want to. I don't want to be super specific about like which ones I've encountered that are like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I try to surround myself when I'm doing this work with narratives with other people, not that are like-minded, but that are um, at the table, like that are sitting with me, um, because um, I think there is there's something good about trying to get other people who are not on board to come. Or to understand it. They don't understand. Right. But you also don't walk into a burning house. If people are, are going to be unhealthy and oppose you while they're there, mm -hmm. uh, then you don't do that. And I got, and this is the part I'm really going to be unapologetic about, is that I do believe wholeheartedly that because of the hierarchies that exist um, in the world and also domestically, like, I'll say it like this, a lot of Desis, South Asians, we have this sort of model minority complex. We're really afraid of white people, man. Like we're so afraid, right? We'll like change our skin for them. We'll change how we talk for them. And it's a survival thing. I'm not trying to poke fun. But when you don't put a boundary on that, you start shaming your brothers and sisters and your neighbors mm -hmm. for when they actually start healing. And you're looking at that and you're like, what are you doing? Right. What are you doing, right? Um, and I think that that's a big problem. And the Southeast Michigan community specifically, we have a lot of unintentional but segregation in the Muslim community, mm -hmm. right? Um, the rich Arabs live in one place, 
the poor Arabs live in another place, mm -hmm. right. right? And so all of our mosques are extremely segregated. Mm -hmm. And if you ask these people their concept about should they be, they definitely don't agree. It's not religious. We're the more de most diverse religion in the world. Probably, the, uh, definitely, probably in, in Michigan. So let's make it local. And when that happens, it's an opportunity to connect. It's an opportunity to learn. Uh, but people won't, even when they're invited, not because they're they're against connecting, but because it's outside of their comfort zone. Right. It's outside of their comfort zone. I don't believe a lot of opposition to good works like um, you know this show or whatever it is. I don't. I don't think the opposition is like this intellectual. Oh, that's not a good idea. I think that's what people end up saying. I think what it really is is like that would require me to do something that's not comfortable, mm -hmm. and because it's uncomfortable, here here's my opposition. And then when people have done good works, for example, let's say they built a temple, or they built a mosque, or they built a church, and they're a community that's also insular. Everybody looks like them. Everybody shares similar professions, right? Everybody agrees on politics, whatever it is, right? Or they banter amongst themselves in a comfortable way, right? Hashtag DCs, like every party, <laughs> but like you know. And but I think I think like then um, to tell people who are well intentioned, who have built something, that there's a gap in the way that they either view or participate in, in the, with their neighbors, uh, they cannot, it's hard to hear it. Right. Because on day to day, or they don't hear it. They yeah. don't hear it. And because and, you're, what you're doing is you're, you're requiring somebody who day to day is doing as, the best work as they, as they can, and you're requiring them to think, um, to be thoughtful about what their position uh, can do to either um, support mm -hmm. or stand against. Um, other good works in the community, right? Yeah. And, and so it's uncomfortable for people to hear that there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. Because we do this dichotomy thing, right? All good or all bad, you know? And if you're doing good works, you don't want to hear, you know? And it's a respect thing, you know, especially in our cultures, that if you speak like that, especially to, I mean, the, the majority of people that have this problem are older, right? They're the, mm -hmm. the older generation. So when you try to approach about these things, they take a personal offense to it. That what it, now? What have I done to you that you're you're calling me out like this, or that I've done something wrong? I raised you. I did this. Yeah. You know, um, they tend to take it very personally, and it's like tunnel vision. They don't really see what you're trying to say, except for what seems, uh, you know. I've I've sort of developed. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. Oh no, you're fine. I've sort of developed on my opinion about that in terms of like, and I may be wrong, but I've had some new thoughts this past year about it that I didn't have before. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree that there are some things that the older generation has done to survive and build and i have a lot of compassion for that um and i do think that there are some narratives that don't always fit for their, for their um kids and even for themselves in terms of like healing um the things that they need but i think like a lot of times and i'm not saying you did you're, you're saying this but i think like in general i used i'll put it on myself i used to think oh well the younger generation will be better all right and now I reflect on, like, I'm looking at, like, okay, let's look at the 50s and 60s in America. A lot of social upheaval. A lot of people are riled up. They want to demand that Washington give better schools, um, depollute cities, um, less incarceration rates. You fast forward to 2016, what has changed systematically? Right? Who's got the bad school? Whatever it is. But there was this pretense, right, that change will come. Change will come. And then what... what the conservative world and the liberal world both did 
is they tokenized people like Martin Luther King and they took his words out of context and said, well, see, he said change will come one day, so you should just wait around. And then they assassinated the dude. I mean, think right. about that, right? Right. It's like change will come, everything's good, right? Um, and you, you undermine those movements by saying change will come and then keep around the same stuff. Mm-hmm. So when I, I agree that there's an opportunity for young people now to learn, not from the mistakes of their parents, but to sort of build off the work of their parents to do other work that's just as important, help us heal better. We have structures to do it. Um, but what makes me pessimistic about that is, let's say I see a wealthy brown kid who's listening to some rap music, right? And, or, you know, um, they're getting in formation and like they like really, you know, uh, they're really down for that. You try to talk to that person about Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice or Eric Garner, and that person sounds exactly like what you don't want to hear, which is, um, it's not that big of a deal. Or they have no opinion. Or they have no, or they're indifferent. Just right. Worse. Or they're, they're uneducated. It's bad because right. it's a refusal to center what's happening um, on the people who are suffering from it. Mm-hmm. At some point... You can, you can always ask for more evidence or whatever, but at some point, if a community of people is shouting at you and saying, we're hurting, and you're like, um, I don't know first. Like, I don't know where that, like, where does that ever happen in real life, like in person? Like, I see somebody fall off the bike, and they're hurting, and they're crying, but I'm like, hold on. First, tell me how you fall off the bike, <laughs> and like, where were you before? Right. Is this your fault? Like, whatever, this like, who does that? Okay. Yeah, who, who does that, right? And so uh, at some point we need to center. So I have, I have this like, I don't know, like maybe I'm just becoming more angry um, and maybe it's a rejection of an earlier self that like... Maybe you're just more aware because you're getting older. That might be true. Um, I think there are some things being a therapist that allow me to hear stories like more directly from people as well. I think that the narrative things allow, allow, allows me to meet different people. Um, but I think like, I think I really thought like, you know, even when uh, we were trying to create a more tolerant environment at MSU, and I have to give props to Harlory Toki, who, like, started Tunnel at Hi, MSU. Hi. Yeah. Uh, do you guys, I don't know if you guys know her, but she, you, do you know her? Oh, you, cool, cool. She, um, she adopted Tunnel from Loyola, is where, where he got it from. So, oh, okay. And um, I actually was just talking to somebody who participated in Loyola's Tunnel yesterday. Um, so, shout That's out to really Hazel, too. Um, and also shout out to my wife, um, <laughs> Fatima. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Who was it? Hillary Swank that like didn't thank her husband that one year she won the Oscar for <laughs> Million Dollar Baby, and everyone freaked the fuck out. Oh, they're gonna harp on her, but like, how many men get up and they like don't think <laughs> yeah, some whatever? Fine. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll meet again for Part that two. talk. <laughs> but I, um, you know, I think like I, I've just grown angry because. If you are somebody who is living in a marginal situation, you can't pick that up or down. It's your, it's your life every day. You cannot put down black if you're black. You can't put down, you know, being a woman, right? Um, I mean, I don't mean that outside of, you know, <laughs> trans issues that we need to, you know, have compassion for. I mean, like, yeah, so, like, you can't put that stuff down. And so when people pick up something for the party and put it down when it has to do with our humanity, I have a distrust. I I can't not. I've learned to have a distrust. And I do think it's a rejection of my earlier self because I really, like what I started to say, is I really believed at MSU 
when we were like trying to make a more tolerant community, and I'm not talking about the structures that be, okay, because they'll get rid of a woman's lounge if they can. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about that. Yeah. Okay. Or they'll pacify the cultural aids if there's some racism on campus. Like I'm I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the students, the young people at MSU. I really thought that okay, like this is where change happens, where like people like think in a way that's critical and you have, you have a critical mind or whatever it is. But like there's also this huge like white liberal savior thing that happens mm-hmm. that like kind of like undermines like other things that's going on in the world and I just I can't handle it. You know, there are definitely kids that go and again, I, I feel like I'm like sounding like I'm making fun of people, but I think these things are true. Like mm-hmm. if you went to study abroad for a hot week, and most of it was a party, but in the midst, you picked up a black kid and you put him on your shoulders and that's your Facebook picture, and you never go back, but for the rest of your life, that's a table talk thing that you can mm-hmm. en- engage right. or whatever. You're not gonna do that with conservative folks, right? right. right? And like, so I've, I've, I've started to, I'm not trying to call out political thought. What I'm trying to say is that I think that sincere people are sincere people. People who are willing to challenge their comfort are people who are willing to challenge their comfort I think that it's a it's a very healthy endeavor to do that, to say what's going on with me, um, where am I accountable, and where am I not, and just meet with other people and do that. And when you already have decided that you're a good person and that's how it's going to be, you're not gonna you're not gonna do that. You're not gonna do. It. You want to go to sleep at night, you know. Um, you can't tell somebody who's a Bernie or Hillary supporter that they did something racist. You can't. <laughs> Because they'll tell you, what are you talking about? My neighbors were black. I had that one black friend. What are you talking about? Um, you know, I, you know, for a hot second, I really liked that black guy in college. Like, people, like, do this crap. Yeah. And then they mumble the N-word if a song is around. And then they check their blind spot to see if a black person's around them. And this isn't coming from people who are, like, you know, wearing white hoods. It's not. That, like, needs to get demystified. Yeah. The people who oppose, and I started by saying there's a large group of people who support but the people who oppose these things do not look a certain way Mm -hmm. do not look a certain way i used to believe they did and i think that part of my anger is a rejection of my earlier participation in this i thought that if you were just liberal it would open up to a world of interaction Mm -hmm. um and um that's fine and don't get me wrong i would much rather have a neighbor that like is being a little bit insincere that doesn't want to shoot me Okay, I would much rather do that. But in terms of like intellectual growth and spiritual growth, I don't know. I kind of appreciate, um, and I'm not talking about Trump, but I'm, I appreciate, I appreciate somebody telling, you know, um, I appreciate honesty because then I know to stay the hell away from somebody, mm-hmm. right? I appreciate honesty about that. So I think it's a, I think it's a mix, and um, I don't know. I think to wrap this back to to narratives, um, there's not like. A certain group that I would trust with it you know it has to be this natural brewing of who are the people that are willing to be vulnerable that's what I care about that's re- really what I care about I think that a lot of th- a lot of the, where the pushback comes from for things like narratives are people that might look like me or not but they want to tell me what a better direction is for me how to handle it yeah you know it's like this it's the same thing with this Kaepernick thing. I don't know if you guys have been following it, right? Mm-hmm. It's like black people, please protest nonviolently and silently. Oh, but not like that. Right. <laughs> right? But not like that. Yeah. And these people were silent when all these other folks died. And I'm not talking about individuals, but the phenomena, the social phenomena where people were silent mm-hmm. and now you got a lot of words. 
And I'm not saying you can't have your own independent opinion about those things. I just question when the gloves come out, why is it always to oppose somebody else's effort? Mm -hmm. And um, I think narratives um, needs to watch out for that. I know that was long-winded, but... No, I mean, it's that is also a very natural thing people tend to do. I mean, even with the podcast, we get that. Like, we get pushback from people. We get people who don't understand. Um, I think that's normal with literally anything that you want to do. If you mm -hmm. want to, like, put a drawing on the fridge, someone's going to be like, that sucks, take it down. <laughs> or, like, you should do this instead on the drawing, right. or color this indifferently. Mm -hmm. People always have opinions, and they don't want to be quiet about it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's normal, um, but it's like you said, it's like how, how are you going to handle that? How are you going to be responding to that? You know, that's really going to make the difference. It's so divisive, right? Um, you know, and I don't, that's why I want to be careful in not steering my anger towards any particular whatever. Mm -hmm. Not because I think that's like the high road or anything like that. I think there are some people that need to be specifically challenged. But the reason I'm not doing that on the radio show is because in media often, in the social media, a lot of our posts... Um, a lot of our content is like an opinion about something, right? And so then right. our, our thoughts are monopolized by these things. We have no respite. You can't just like glance at something and have, what is that kind of thought? Right. You have to have yeah. an opinion on it. You yeah. have to be either angry or supportive. Right. Like, and, it's so, and it sucks. Um, it really sucks. And like, you know, there's a lot of uh, great articles and stuff like that out there. But like a lot of articles are coming out that are nonsense. It's just like five reasons why this is the best. It's you know, like now. Yeah, yeah, six yeah. reasons why that's the worst. people still want to have that opinion on it. Or yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. So I'm going to repost it. Wait, Everything's loaded. With? There's nothing yeah. there. <laughs> well, people also, because of how our, and you know, this isn't totally accurate, but like because of how our generation is with the internet, they bulletize everything, so they make it. That's not a word, but you know, they put everything. It's as a word now. They put it as bullet points, so you can skim it, retweet it, repost it, and then you think someone thinks you're an expert on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we also like we don't focus in on one thing. Mm -hmm. We have all like an entire mm -hmm. expansive list of things that we're interested in, and we're just kind of like a jack of all trades versus like a master of one thing, which is also a problem. If you've already decided what you're um, agreeing with or not agreeing with. When people do it with albums now, love yeah. it, hate mm -hmm. it. You yeah. know, we're either zero or a hundred. Yeah, yeah. Right? I don't know any car that drives that way and doesn't get in some trouble. If you're zero, you don't go anywhere. You're a hundred, you're going to get either a ticket or in an accident. Yeah. Right? So people need to learn to drive at 40 or 50, like, you know, depending on where you're at. You know, I, um, I recently listened to Frank Ocean's album. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you guys have heard it. I haven't yet. I haven't yet either. Yeah. I've been meaning to go through mm -hmm. it. So I, I really liked it. Yeah. But, you know, there's content in it that I don't enjoy. Mm -hmm. uh, but, like, I really respect him as, as an artist. And there's some songs in there that are listenable to me and there's not. But, I, but I'm not, like, coming up with these predetermined or I'm allowing myself to sort of digest it. Right. And, you know, and I like that because, um, or, like, having a re-listen. And I like that because most of the things that we consume nowadays intellectually are already preloaded. Mm -hmm. They're already preloaded with um, yes, no, all good, all bad. And I just don't think human beings need to be that way. It makes us panic, mm -hmm. honestly. Yeah. So. I don't know if this is like totally the same thing, but I know a couple people that will Yelp every um, restaurant or like new place that they go to every mm -hmm. single time before they go there so they already know like if they're going to like it or they hate it and if they're thinking they're going to hate it they're not going to go someone mm -hmm. that will always read the comments on the YouTube channel of the trailer of the new movie that's coming out you know and like what is that doing if you wanted to see the movie why did you just do that you know right. my friend my best friend he's actually 
uh, reproductive justice um, lawyer, advocate, mm -hmm. um, works for Planned Parenthood in D.C. Um, and uh, he's, yeah, and that's like a whole thing too. Uh, for anybody out there, and I'm not a lawyer, but for anybody out there that thinks that reproductive justice is just the debate about um, life and choice, mm -hmm. uh, you should think about like pollution and raising your kids and what it means to have resources and, mm -hmm. and what it means to be blamed if you have a job or what it means to be blamed when you stay home. And um, he, um, he works out there and some really cool uh, work with that. But he, I was, uh, that's just my plug about my friend Gosh, he was really cool. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I think um, one of the things that he says is like a satire. Mm -hmm. He like, we were, we went on a Labor Day trip to up north and I had never been. It was awesome. It's we like heaven on earth. Yeah, okay. the dunes and stuff. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. I'd never been. And um, like on the way, we went to a Burger King and he goes, you think I should yelp this Burger King? Because like Burger King is a chain. And then like we got to a bridge. He's like, do you think I should yelp this bridge? And it's like, because he's like sort of sat poking fun at what yeah. you were talking about. Um, I don't know. He's hilarious. But uh, it's, I mean, it's true, right? We got opinions about everything. So... And it makes it, like, if, if that's what you're consuming uh, constantly, it's really hard to navigate, I don't know, a relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you love one uh, love somebody that you need to, like, talk about how they're hurting you? Right. right. How do you also have a boundary from somebody because you can't be around them, even friendships, but you have respect for them? Mm -hmm. Right. How do you uh, love your parents but live in another house? How do you live with somebody but also have tensions that you need to iron out? See, we're all, we're all one or the other, and I think that makes us, um, I don't know, and I hope that narratives um, can help people process in a different way. I hope it, it does do that. And I think that's one of the reasons that dialogue can hijack that. I, I like dialogue, but in narrative specifically, there's so many things that are public about it. Right. It's not like therapy. There isn't a confidentiality I can control. You can't really control that one-on-one -on -one either, but like on my end, I, I can when I'm a therapist, right? I can I decide where the notes, you know, they, they stay with me, it's confidential, um, you know, outside of safety issues. But with something public, there's all these public parts of it that the parts that we can preserve that are therapeutic, which is that you are going through your own process and nobody can interrupt it, that's one of the things that makes narrative um, a, narratives a therapeutic endeavor. There's all these public parts of narratives, but that's one of the things that we preserve that's therapeutic. Um, and I wanted to, if it's okay, to talk about there, there are actually some communal pieces to narratives as well. Yeah. Um, we do two games, one's heavy, one's light. Um, and so in the beginning, after a couple storytellers, we do one where we ask a question that's heavier, uh, like, what's something you want to say that you've never said? Or something I, that hurts you is? And then we have people from the audience that can fill in the blank. Um, okay. Yeah, and so like it's a community story and at near the end of the show we do something lighter like something I always love to talk about is or um, You know something that gives me relief is and it becomes this way for the audience to tell a story And I have a little cheap trick that I use which is once five people go everybody goes <laughs> um, So like it is like a vulnerable thing But like you know if you have enough people in the audience that are willing to go it becomes um, people keep going right. And my favorite part of it is that like sometimes like these silences between the last person who filled in the blank and you think that every, the crowd is done and somebody is like conjuring up the courage in the back mm -hmm. to like fill in the blank and yeah. then they'll say it. Um, and like it's a really cool That's thing. Awesome.
That must be neat just to watch. Like, oh, it's amazing. People get that, you know, take that leap finally. It's honestly amazing. Um, and those are like some of the aesthetic pieces about narratives that I really like. Mm-hmm. I really liked doing it at a coffee shop, but one of the things I didn't like is that when those silences happened, like there's also a coffee machine <laughs> going off right. in the background. So like I like that uh, people fill the silences. Um, it's, you know, like waiting for the next kernel in, in the popcorn. Um, it's really cool. Um, and I think the other community piece that we do is that in the beginning of the show we have a prompt or a painting and people respond to it and they like um, submit their response either in like a poetic way or a paragraph or a line and I take all the note cards and I used to compete on MSU Slam Poetry Team and so um, I'm a little rusty but what I do is in the middle of the show I take everybody's thing and I perform a, uh, it's the only time I perform my narratives because I, oh, okay. I'm the host. I'm supposed to um, cater the space, be the custodian of it, frame it. Um, um, I have to be more therapist-y um, and well mix host. I'm like the Jimmy Fallon of the show. So I can't, I can't be the musical guest, right? So like yeah. that's, that's what it is. So, but um, one thing I do do um, is that in the middle of the show, I take those pieces and it becomes a communal poem that everyone wrote together. There's another way to do that. You can pass around like a notebook, mm. but I like this more because nobody sees what anybody else is writing, oh. so it's completely organic. And then, I mean, you need somebody who can either do prose or theater or slam mm. to do it, so they can, they can do it. Um, but that is, that's another communal piece. And again, the latter half of the show is people who got the courage. They didn't sign up. We might not know them. Right. We've had storytellers that, like, at the first or second show, they didn't want to talk, but in the third one they went to, they're like, I'm going to do it this time. And, like, everybody has a, their own thing and the last thing I wanted to say is unlike a movie or um, you know a play what we try to do is it's okay to leave if you're triggered and if I say that in the beginning I hope that it allows the storytellers to feel that they're not offended I mean it's hard not to notice when people leave but I frame it we we as a group we frame it in the beginning um, because you know it is a it is a thing so right. if somebody's talking about a trauma that's a little bit too familiar to yours and you're not ready to hear it, you, we're not going to keep you in the room. People can leave and come as they, as they um, please. Once you come, you have to come on time. But like <laughs> once you're there, uh, you can leave and come as you please. Um, I have one question. So if you're playing therapist in real life, therapist slash host on, for Narrows of Pain, how, what, are you, what are your outlets? My wife. Um, <laughs> she allows me to be a kid. I think like other than the obvious you know reasons people talk about attraction interests um, you know having synergy and her life goals in mind mm-hmm. I think that both her and I are leaders like we like to lead by ourselves we like to serve other people mm-hmm. which is fine it's fine but like if you do it to a point where you're dehydrated like going back to that earlier analogy and you don't give to yourself because you might identify it as selfish and not self-care you have to have things in your life where you're like, nope, this is for me. So what I've started to do, and it's hard to do when you're like contracted as a therapist, is I've been a little bit more rigid on my schedule because I'm learning to honor what it means to come home. And as a graduate student, you hold all these things that you're happening at once and you feel altruistic for doing it. And you feel like I got through this and that and I directed that and this. And uh, I think like that's fine. I did that for a while, Um, but I'm learning how valuable it is to be home and I think it was a you know um, I'm 28 so it's not like you know when I was 12 I wasn't interested in somebody or 15 or whatever but I think that when you give and give and give a lot of times and I don't mean to 
this this for everybody. But and I promise when I name the other outlets I have, I won't give you a story every time. <laughs> I, but uh, this one's important. Um, my wife's important. So I think like for me, like when you do that too much, you might be even in friendships where your relationship is to give, to be the caregiver. And, but the thing is, you are not your therapist for your wife or your husband or your friends. What you do for them may be more therapeutic than what a therapist does, but it doesn't look like a therapist's job um, because you are interacting with this person. This is somebody you are with. You can't help but be influenced back. And um, she is, um, I like to say, a free spirit. So, like, she, uh, like, I don't always know, like, where she's I- where she is. <laughs> she's, like, doing, she's, like, a lot of independent endeavors. She's very creative. And I think being around her gave me the, like, I, I did it for myself. Mm-hmm. But you can't quit smoking around smokers, right? right. Um, and so, for me, I, uh, as a statement to myself, that's not why I married her, but it was a statement to myself that this is something I allowed into my heart where I could just be a kid. We're like kids at home. We play like so much Mario Kart on, on 64. It's awesome. That's she beats me so badly. <laughs> she doesn't like it, but I rub it. When I beat her, I, I sort of rub it in her face. Because she like resets it if I beat her. Because it's so, it's so unfamiliar for her to like lose to me. So like it, she's like ready to reset the game if I... I'm about to beat her. So I don't know. We, we just like we're, we're kids. And I think like when you um, embrace somebody's warmth like that, um, it you know, they can they can support you. They can hug you, whatever it is. But you have to let it in. Like you have to let it in. Um, it's like Goodwill Hunting. Uh, there's a scene where Robin Williams like is telling Matt Damon that it's not his fault. Yeah. <laughs> again and again and again. He doesn't want to take. He's like, get out of my face. Eventually he embraces him. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like. I'm not Matt Damon. Um, I'm definitely more attractive. Um, but I, I feel like, uh, you know, I, you have to do that. When you are serving people, your clients too, the people you serve also deserve you at your energy. And if you keep self-sacrificing, and a lot of us, I think, uh, and also on the South Asian tip, because we're communal, a lot of times we, we misidentify being together as being self-sacrificing, and we, like, watch generations and generations and generations of people do that. And then we feel like we have to, like, we can't give to ourselves, you know. And I'm not promoting individualism, okay. There's a difference between self-care and selfishness. And so, too, is there a difference between not knowing the right to your own body and soul mm-hmm. and togetherness. Togetherness is positive. It brings you up, right. Losing touch with having ownership of yourself brings you down, right. right? Selfishness brings you down. Self-care brings you up. Um, and so... I don't know. I think that uh, it was a statement to myself, uh, and like, yeah, it was cool. So that's one hanging out with my wife, um, and I'll just list the other ones. Um, I am currently working on a lot of music. Um, I just finished arranging, not not really arranging, um, not arranging like the music itself, uh, arranging like my track listing for this instrumental, um, uh, some instrumental works that I made in college that I like didn't ever release, and kind of being like embracing of it and I'm gonna do that and I've been writing um, a lot of my own um, poetry and music again Very um, cool. so yeah I do want to get your opinion really quickly on something that I was very surprised at when I was at Michigan State um, I didn't have a lot of Indian friends growing up mm-hmm. and I grew up in like a very white town and in my high school there was like a couple Indian kids sprinkled in but we never acknowledged one another so when I got to state this was like CIUS was there mm-hmm. and um, 
it was like amazing. Like this is the analogy I have every time when I tell Tiffany too. Is it's like going into a place where everyone knows the same inside joke. It's like everyone gets it. And the one thing that really floored me was that there was so much hate within the community, like people talking badly about each other, mm-hmm. people talking badly about. Um, and my boyfriend is from India, and mm-hmm. he has tutored kids. Like he he did his masters at uh, U of M, mm-hmm. and he would tutor undergrads. And these undergrad American-born kids would make fun of him for being right. from India, and that mm-hmm. was just the craziest thing to me. And we, I mean, we're such a divided community, but it just it blows my mind that we're not more supportive of one another. And the one quote I always like is that there's not enough of us to be so divided. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to get your opinion on that, being as you're sort of still in the mix with. Uh, so at least the Muslim community. I know I'm really long-winded. I hope that's okay. Is there like yeah. a, is there a limit to like how much we need to no, leave? No, yeah, we're like great it, contact. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, I have a lot of things to say about that, but I mean, I'll I'll start by framing it by saying like this is all in my opinion. So I would appreciate like you know what you guys have to say about what I'm saying too. When you're young and a teacher doesn't know how to pronounce your name, you start learning how to survive in that environment. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's only it. But, like, okay, like, there are some names that have a lot of different consonants. Mine has one. (laughs) I heard everything. So silly. Zen. And there's some Orientalist bullshit in there, because I'm like, (laughs) you you recognize that Zen is a word that you know before that's from another world, and so you're going to just call me that? I have no E in my name. I've had people hyphenate between the A and the I and call me Zayin. What? Yeah. And then the, then the kids will make fun of, like, the other parts of your name. Mm-hmm. Which, if you can't trust the outside world as a kid, because you can't control your environment at home or in school, mm-hmm. okay? It's, you can't be five and be like, I think the school system should change. Like, you can't, so you can't <laughs> yeah, do that. Can't. As adults, we do have an opportunity to pick our, I mean, in, within the right resources, we have the ability to set who we, um, there's a lot of things we don't control, mm-hmm. right? Systemic things we don't always control that we can fight against and join up against. But there are certain things that, as adults that we can control that we weren't able to as children. Mm-hmm. One of them is like having complete agency on who you keep next to you, your friends, uh, people that you, you bound, your boundaries, um, your self-care. So uh, trying to sleep, trying to eat well. I say trying because it's, it's a struggle, right? There's pieces of it in your body you can't control. And it's control. daily. It's a daily and it's thing. a daily an thing. thing. Um, your efforts. Not always the outcome, but your efforts you can control. But as kids... Um, when you can't trust that people will support you out here, you put it on yourself. So you start embracing the name that your, your teacher gave you. You start um, being okay with um, what your you know, uh, white peers like said or whatever. And then people that look like you are also participating in it. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is funny, but like when I was um, 15, like I had, and again, I'm not stereotyping, but like a bunch of Daisies did this. Man, I had no beard. I had colored contacts. I gelled my hair up. Oh, yeah. I like spoke in an accent so my wife, my, my white friends would laugh. I became a caricature. Um, and I had to have a niche. I had to have some sort of niche. Mm-hmm. Now, I went into poetry and music and all that stuff for myself. It was 95% for myself. But believe me, the other 5%, I used as leverage to survive my social space. I didn't know I was doing it. Mm-hmm. You don't know you're doing it, right? You're just, and you're at a formidable and very critical age. You know, when you're 14 or 15, you're not a kid anymore. You're also not an adult. Mm-hmm. 
you don't, at least at the very, uh, at, at a resource level, you're not able to handle all this stuff. You can't like, you know, decide how much money's coming in, where you sleep, you know, like a lot of stuff. There are people that are parentified in, in certain situations, they do do that. But like, you know, you're not, you don't have everything in your hands, um, like you do when you're a little bit older. And so you survive, right? Now, I, I appreciate some of the friendships that I made uh, when I uh, was young, um, but I, I, I grew up in Novi, and in, in Oakland County, um, there's a lot of tokenizing of minorities, not in any um, sort of um, intentional way, but again, it's like that comfortable thing. I knew that I had to do well. Um, I knew that I had to be better or just as good as my peers. But there are also some buffers that helped me survive that in a little bit of an easier way than some of my peers who are not from the United States. Mm -hmm. I can speak like a white guy. Mm -hmm. I can point to cultural cues um, that I've known growing up here. And I can talk to them about sports. And if you want to be brown and masculine, then talk about medicine and talk about sports. And there you have it. Maybe every so often talk about prayer. You know, like, right? And so when I came to college, I also um, found that, like, there's, there's a world is here, and there's a community. But, you know, I think, like, what, what you were saying, like, I never thought about it that way. But some of the remnants that are left from um, growing up that way allowed me to participate, not me, but I, I observed, I was witness to the battle for social hierarchy and again, I don't think it's intentional. I don't think people are doing it on purpose. I think it's like, it's comfortable, you've practiced it, and now you're with like, you know, now you're with your brown friends. And so, you know, how are you gonna feel good about yourself? Mm-hmm. You put somebody else down, right? There's plenty of ways you can feel good about yourself, but there's this arrogant type where you can step on someone, and how do we do that? We make fun of immigrants, right? right? We make fun of somebody different. Or it's like you said, having that token thing about you, and you know I talk yeah. about this, yeah. having that one thing about you that differentiates yourself mm-hmm. from everyone that looks like you, mm-hmm. to be like, yes, I'm different, and I'm better than all of you because of mm-hmm. this. The, the blonde hair, being a singer, doing all these different things, like mm-hmm. dancing, um, and you kind of cling to that as like, this is the one thing that I have that's mine. And I don't want to speak with lack of compassion for it. I think it is this like effort to try to figure out who you are, right? right. but there are some consequences of when you don't put checks and balances on participating that in, in a way that um, sort of bullies other people. Yeah. And, you know, and definitely in college, there's also this, like, can I be brown but, like, into enough, like, offshoot music that people will right. identify me as really cool and hipster and unapproachable, but, like, you know, like, just all this stuff we, like, so we do. I feel it's, like we still go through that, yeah. you know, in yeah. our late 20s. And um, <laughs> mid 20s no. to late 20s <laughs> and, and it's fine like we're all searching for it and I think um, but the part that you said about like making fun of immigrants and all that kind of stuff I think it comes from that, that survival piece mm-hmm. I mean what does Bobby Jindal say right he says like people should stop he's a brown dude mm-hmm. and there's paintings of him that where he's not a brown dude right, right? and he's like he's like all oh, well people should be stop, stop talking about their cultures because that's the reason that we're all divisive because people talk about their cultures too much brown dude you know, and like most people get angry about Bijendal, and I am too. But I also want to know, like, why? What are you hurting about, man? Like, what are you? What are? What is it about? You know, your your participation in your culture that's so hard. Right. And I think like what I'm doing now for myself is I'm trying to be um, embracing of the parts of my culture that I'd like to participate in that feel relieving to me. But yeah, I think like that's what I have to say about it. I think there's a lot of survival going on. 
and um, you know I'm I'm not embarrassed for me doing that growing up but I I reject the notion that I was put in a position to have to do that and there are a lot of people that in college or in high school who when they like see me again or they see me on social media they want me to be how I've always been unapologetic Mm -hmm. but now I'm a little bit more focused about like who I am and where I exist in the world and there's a lot of people that when they see that and they were friends with me under some other social contracts like when Zane was funny and he did that voice Mm. right and when you know when Zane was the rapper kid I went to my high school reunion I kid you not the first thing out of everyone's mouth and I'm sure like it's fine there's a there's a there's an innocent part of it is like that's how I participated in high school Mm -hmm. you know they're not trying to be malicious but they're like, hey, man, you making any new raps lately? And I'm like, how about ask me how I'm doing? Right. You know, or you know what I mean? And, I, and again, I think that's just a social thing that people do. I don't think they were being malicious. Yeah. But I could, I could do two things. I could be compassionate that they weren't being mean. And I could be hurt by the fact that that's how we're interacting. Mm-hmm. And um, it bothered me. Like, that, like, they didn't bother me, but that bothered me, right. that, that sort of typecast. And I don't know. I don't know. That's that's how I how I feel about it. I think that all circles back to the point of vulnerability and like narratives of pain and mm-hmm. and allowing yourself to be raw in front of other people. I think and that was a big reason that this even really started is because if you're able to do that with people, you're instantly humanizing yourself. Someone mm-hmm. sees you as a person instead of like that person's are really mean and really standoffish or like no, they're really just going through like depression or they're having mm-hmm. a really hard time right now or whatever it is. Um, so I think that, you know, people being more open and able to hear other people's stories or tell their own stories is really going to go hand in hand to us treating each other better and treating mm-hmm. each other like human beings. Mm-hmm. Bookended. <laughs> okay. So this is a part of the episode where we play a little this or that type game, okay. which we have brilliantly named this or that. So it's just rapid fire. We ask you two options. You have to just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Oh, no. We don't ask you about it. You don't justify it, anything. You just, like, say it, and then we go to the next Oh, my gosh. There's only five of them. That's (laughs) it. It'll be easy. It'll be fun. Do people know that, like, I might be saying the thing that I don't mean? No, this is it. This is final. Okay. This is going on the record. Okay. Forever. All right. <laughs> We're going to edit it in a way that makes you look so bad after such a great interview. This entire thing, actually. Now, the whole interview is going to just make you look a terrible yeah. person. Okay. No one's coming. Dr. Phil or Dr. Laura? Dr. Laura, because I don't know who that is. <laughs> Dr. Laura Schlesinger? Okay. No. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I have, I have aversion towards Dr. Phil. Oh, okay. that's fair. I think most people do. Mm. Makes me look bad. <laughs> Poetry or music? Poetry. Basketball or Mario Kart? Basketball. A croissant or a scone? Croissant. It's hard because you feel like justifying what you said. Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Or uh, last week, Tiffany like yeah. replied to an answer that she didn't think was like, because we do it quickly and we mm-hmm. don't tell each other beforehand. And it was like summer or fall, and she'd said fall. And she's like, wait, no, I guess that's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> We're figuring things out yeah. here. Would you rather have fingers on your ears or taste buds on your feet? Say that again. Would you rather have fingers on your ears, like full on five fingers on each ear? So a hand. A hand on each. <laughs> or, but like still your ear. You just got like fingers yeah. coming out of your, mm-hmm. your ears. 
mm-hmm. or taste buds on your feet. Taste buds on my feet. There's no question about it. In fact, in fact, you don't even have to give me the opposing thing. If somebody <laughs> said more taste out buds, there, yes. if I could, if I could pay somebody, well, okay, no, I don't want to like taste the road. I was gonna say, what's the logic behind this? I'm interested now. I don't know. What's like the benefit. Okay, well, because you don't have to believe in five second rule. You just eat it with your toe. Well, you don't. Have, you don't have. Oh, you could taste it with your toe. Oh, oh, yeah, fine. But you could. Oh, eat you it can't with eat your it. Oh, that's weird. So, like, feet <laughs> are interesting, and I thought about this, and um, uh, when I was up north, because mm-hmm. you're on the sand dunes and mm-hmm. stuff, and like, then sometimes like, there's rocks, and they're like super sharp, mm-hmm. but like yeah. the sand buffers it from right. it, whatever. And so, like, feet have this really durable quality. But they're also extremely sensitive, which is why people tickle feet. And mm-hmm. so even if you're not ticklish, yeah. feet are ticklish. They're like this sensitive thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like so happy that they're not sensitive like your temples are. So like at this perfect level, your feet are <laughs> yeah. sensitive, right? So like I wouldn't want to like have taste buds where I'm like tasting the sand or whatever. Yeah, right. But like, oh my gosh, you get hydrated by just putting your water in uh putting your feet in water. Oh or that would be um or like but like the world is how it is. Yeah. So like that's what sucks. But like <laughs> I don't know, like, if you were, like, if you were, like, that's in a... That's how we have to end that. that <laughs> no, that's the reason the world sucks, is because <laughs> the ground isn't edible. No, but, like, if you're, if you're, like, I don't know, if you're, like, in a level of Candy Crush, or, like, if you're, like, in one of those games, like, Mario games, like, the whole world is, like, made of candy. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, the feet being oh, yeah. taste buds. Oh, yeah, yeah. that'd be jackpot. Then that would be, like, normal. Then, you know, we'd be created that way, because why not? Oh, yeah, that's... Yeah. Yeah, I would like to... And do that. Yeah. <laughs> Chai party talking about the real issues in the world. <laughs> okay. On there. So yeah. And we can be Facebook friends if you want. Sure. <laughs> or real life friends. <laughs> I don't know about that. That's too Oh, that reminds me, like, because, like, you know, growing up South Asian and Muslim, like, uh, you know, certain beliefs and, like, taboos about, like, dating. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, you'd be on AIM, you know, and, and when you didn't have a passive-aggressive, like, away message and you were actually talking to somebody, you could be like, do you want to, like, AIM date? Like, because then, cause then we don't actually have to hang out and right. make our lives, like, vulnerable to our parents killing us. So, like, maybe we could right. just, like, talk on AIM. Oh, my gosh, you know? yeah, you should do that. Like, all right, nine thirty. I'm talking to my friend for like an hour. Maybe like webcam a little bit. Like, is this still recording? Is this still recording? Yeah, it is. Okay, so like also like kids, watch out for predators. <laughs> don't don't, don't uh, talk to people outside of your location um, unless like and don't ever give out your um your your name and your address and Contact stuff like that. Um, it's okay to feel close to someone um, if that's how you really feel, but just know that that's not always real when you meet somebody. So um, I know that hard to meet people in real life but be careful because none of it's worth like getting kidnapped so put that out there it's fair (laughs) one point i wanted to bring up over something that you had said but um talking about like an older generation the last thing i'll say is sometimes i don't think that we give our parents or people that we know that are older to us enough credit oh that's true yeah like there are so many times where i was like oh my parents are definitely gonna kill me they're definitely disown me like this yeah. is gonna be the tipping point and my mm-hmm. parents are the coolest like they they get it and they try mm-hmm. and some people don't have that luxury some people really do have parents that they can't talk to or, tr- or rely on with things but i think more often than not that we that we underestimate them yeah uh can i piggyback off that okay yeah. so like i i um i used to get like 
kind of frustrated if like because like I'm gonna be thirty like in two years and so like when um uh when I go home right and I, I'm visiting my mom it's like exactly the same as it was when I grew up like it's just it's not different mm-hmm. and so like I'm like you know what my mom's never gonna be uh mad at me to the point where she like doesn't tell me to like go pick up my clothes or like uh say you gotta go eat this thing and like I kind of have grown to appreciate that and I think on a on a on a more social level i think like it is uh important to to credit um uh, people for what they built you know what i mean Uh, i think the part that's hard for me is like i think we i think i sort of encourage a compartmentalizing of it and and actually in a lot of things and and right that you can um call out classism and racist stuff and um fair and lovely on your wedding day with some bleach like you know I, you can call that stuff out and know um, that not everybody participates in it. And even if they, they do, that doesn't define everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that's survival. And that doesn't mean it's okay. But I think, like, you're right. We often protect ourselves by being contrary to our parents when they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that there's all these other reasons to embrace them and for the work that they did because... Maybe we don't have this conversation in this radio show if, um, you know, somebody didn't say, I'm going to come and find some opportunities and invest. So yeah. you got to respect that. Right. So Yeah, definitely. I agree. I have one more question for yeah. you. I'm so sorry. I'm kidding you guys. Um, you did a South Asian domestic oh, yeah, abuse about that, yeah. study. Mm-hmm. Um, someone sent it to me. I think that's how I originally found narratives of pain even. Okay. But um, are we still recording? Yes. Okay. Now we are. Um, so if you can, yeah, that'd be really like, cool. what is it? What am I doing? Yeah, just basics. Like to somebody, I don't think you. Oh, I no. had told. I had sent you the link for it. I think, but so I'm um, still getting my doctorate, mm-hmm. and you know, I actually finished my classes by 2013, and then I was TAing at Michigan State until 2014 spring, and I had done my comprehensive exams and my and all this stuff and so then all I have left is my dissertation so I've um, when you propose you have like three chapters and you write about like what's important rational like rationalize it and then what people have done with it and um, how to best study what you're talking about and so like I'm really into healing I'm really into how people reclaim their stories how they learn to narrate their lives different than the traumas that they've experienced and um, as I was looking through all this and I was researching it throughout grad school I noticed that like there are major gaps in academics and also major gaps in practice mm-hmm. um, about services for people from specific social locations. Domestic violence, I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it's different for people of um, certain communities, their context, than other people. For example, um, whereas maybe in a one-on-one relationship, there's a certain assailant that you need to uh, keep yourself safe from. Um, and, you know, um, there is... Um, when you're in a uh, communal system, what if it's your in-laws? What if you're here on contingency residency status and when you separate from a relationship, you also get deported? And what if you have a kid who's an American citizen? Now they're going to be with the person that you're saying is abusive. Mm -hmm. So like there's all these complicated things. Unfortunately, there is still a culture of why don't you separate? Why don't you separate? And it's so totally condescending. Mm-hmm. And even in uh, in Western and white relationships, 
people don't always want to separate, but they want safety, either in the relationship or they, you know, you can't tell somebody what to do. You can empower them to think about what they want, um, or they can, you know, feel empowered to do that. So I believe in the power of stories, and so my dissertation is about directly interviewing survivors who are now safe, because if you bring somebody who's not safe into an interview, you can make them vulnerable. Somebody could be over their shoulder, follow them to the interview. You just, you can't do that. Um, so we have to be honest about that. Um, you know, I wish there was a way that was safe, but there's, there's, it's hard. So people who are now identify as safe, but are South Asian, they identify as South Asian. So like their diaspora is like something from, uh, there's, they're part of a diaspora either from like something about the Indian subcontinent, right? Um, so in my study, and there's other countries, Nepal, Sri Lanka, but in my study, um, I'm doing like last century, like India, like so like Pakistan, Bangladesh, India. Um, and I don't know the whole history, but like those those three countries, um, and women in the Midwest. So like I'm I originally wanted to interview people one on one, and the stigmas are so high. And once people are safe, it's kind of like when you're done and you graduated from an institution, you delete the emails you get after that. Mm -hmm. So like reaching out to people from a specific agency, and I can't talk about which agencies I've like whatever, um, but there are a lot of great ones that I know of in, in the Midwest area. Up Nagar, Hamdard, uh, My Family Services in the East Coast, uh, Saheli, like there's all these great ones um, that have been around for a long time. Now we've talked earlier about like, you know, we're learning things and our like, you know, elders didn't do it. Actually they did and they've been stifled and sort of the story that's been told about our, um, uh, about our cultures mm -hmm. in America. There have been people that have started specifically serving South Asian women domestic violence advocacy. They've been around 20, 30 years. But like a lot of times, the academic discussion about domestic violence continues to be a white discussion. And, that, and I don't think it's intentional, but who do you have access to for sample populations and research when you're talking about people? Who comes to that research? and then you reflect it. There's this thing in academics where like, if you have too many people in your sample that are like black or brown, then you label it as such. Mm -hmm. But if it's like a general dominant population, you just say, you don't even, you don't even, you, nobody says white child development book, right? Everyone right. says child development. Right. So, um, it, so that extends to the problem with domestic violence in academia because there's a lot of um, really funded um, domestic violence agencies, which are great, it's better than not having them, mm -hmm. but they're not staffed with bilingual staff. They're not always in touch with the like, legal context of um, different women that they serve. Um, and also, um, every time there's grant funding for something like really huge, it, it can take away uh, grant funding from something that's competing with that. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to honor a lot of the spaces that do exist, have existed, but our community doesn't talk about them. And, and the academic world doesn't talk about them. Mm -hmm. So I thought my dissertation study, why not uh, directly ask the experience of South Asian women, they're the people going through it, what did you need, what was your experience like? So instead of sort of assuming that it's the same or instead of relying on existing publications that don't include them mm -hmm. or relying on community members that talk about survivors but shame survivors sometimes, um, then we ask them directly. And I think that it's really courageous when people decide, yes, I will participate in this study. I also understand sometimes it's not safe or it doesn't feel safe, so people shouldn't if they don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, and we've encrypted the whole thing, and it's like you can, uh, you know, you don't have to, uh, you, like I, I have no idea. 
I can't, there's completely confidential. There's nothing about it that is, you can track, be tracked. Um, and um, yeah, so, you know, I originally wanted to meet everybody in person, but because of the stigmas, my sample grew really uh, slowly. And I want to do this type of work, storytelling, the narrative stuff in my life. I don't want to do it as a student uh, with like, the, you know, and worry about a grade for it. That's like a wrong frame for it. Yeah. Uh, now I now I sometimes I wish I did some really like existing data set and get done. Um, I, I wanted to I really wanted to, you know, when you're a grad student, you want to save the world with your work. And I'm like, nope, I should have hustled it and got out. <laughs> but like, um, I'm also very proud of this. And I, I you know, I hope that I would have done it if it wasn't my dissertation. Um, there's a lot of personal stuff in it. I am a South Asian man, but um, so I don't know what it's like to be a South Asian woman um, or say a survivor of domestic violence. Um, uh, we didn't get into it, but I'm a survivor in other ways. Um, um, but this specific type of trauma. And um, although men also obviously, and that's really silenced, um, I wanted to really honor that context matters. So I wanted to talk about the gendered and powered part of violence and abuse. And so um, this study is extracting stories from the source. They are the gatekeepers of what happens to them. They're the ones that experience it. What they say is how we should inform best practice at domestic violence agencies. At the very least, if somebody says something like, I could have used somebody that spoke my language. Mm-hmm. I could have used somebody that I didn't have to explain my entire life story to before, before this. You know, um, I didn't want to be made vulnerable legally. Right? How many times do we talk about assault and a big institution like MSU or the police or something says, well, it's on record now. Mm-hmm. And you have this choice between like, putting it on record and maybe nothing's going to happen and then keeping it to yourself, right? Our agencies can't do that too, like come on, yeah. you know? And so um, so that's what it is. It's about informing best practice and um, making our um, community more aware. But I'll be honest, like I could write a, a million publications and academics will read it. Oprah can say three words and everybody will read the book she recommended. So like I know the extent of like how impactful this can be. Um, I do believe it is impactful, but it's not impactful if it stops at the dissertation um, and um, in in these academic publications. So um, this is a start, um, but it's about um, stories from survivors, South Asian women survivors in the Midwest um, who would like to kind of share what their experience is like and what they needed. I'm uh, honored to learn about it so that I can put that into back into the research. Yeah. yeah, and we'll make sure to put the link in the description of the podcast so people can find it um, since our audience is directly mostly South Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think this is going to be huge. Keep us posted. Mm-hmm. Let us know when it's done so we can like read it and everything. Like, yeah, this is for just sure. so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm That's glad awesome. that there's somebody out there kind of, you know, making it more known and letting people know that it happens more and there was something, because we did research as well for it, mm-hmm. that well, it was like 30-something percent of South Asian women have been uh, victims of some sort of domestic abuse, mental, verbal, physical. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy. That's such a high number. It is. It's insane. For how the many people that don't talk about it. Or don't oh, and no, for how exactly. huge our population yeah. is. Like, mm-hmm. if you think about that, plus it's 40% of that number, right. like, that's mm-hmm. insane. I And, you know, one thing that I run into a lot is that when I do this study, um, if I'm talking to somebody that um, they, they, they care, they might say, well, yeah, well, there's a lot of problems, like, over there. And I, I, I understand in terms of, like, legal and resource recourse, like, there is some difference. Like, in Pakistan, I'm pretty sure you can't post bail except for with a male family member. 
um, you know, in India, there, in India, there's not there was not an articulated domestic violence law until 2005. Before that, you could only take domestic violence issues or domestic issues to court if you're talking about dowry, which means like the money, mm-hmm. uh, the sort of the the gift that's exchanged when people get married. It's like what is entitled to a woman in case a divorce happens. Right. So that prote- it's sort of right. protective, mm-hmm. um, but like. Uh, like those disputes, but now they articulated one. Which so things are things are going in, but that's the thing, right? Countries aren't the same as their peop- as their people. There are all these great movements, mm-hmm. right? But like I don't know, Pakistan had a woman prime minister, they got assassinated. So like, right. there's like some stuff. Yeah. So there is some truth to that. But in the in the U.S., like you know what's uh, you know in terms of abuse of white women, it's one in four that report. Right. That's twenty five percent. Right, so this idea that that's an Eastern problem is false. Yeah. Um, and that goes back to one of our first things we talked about, like my scar and yours, right? Yeah. Um, and we sort of, what we do is we do the xenophobic thing of your culture is jacked up, you know? And that actually keeps people, I think, I don't, I'm not saying this about the well-intentioned domestic violence agencies or researchers that are out there that really care about this work, but I do think that if you can pin it on a culture, then you don't have to do anything on your end to change mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. right? If you can say, well, this is your jacked up culture, so That's just how it's going this, is how we're, this is our services. If you yeah. don't want to use them, get out of here. Mm-hmm. And I, do, I think like, other, people got hard lives. So even if you don't want to say that, you might end up saying that in the middle of your service. Right. So that's why uh, we got to calm down and just like hear, um, hear the stories of these people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, um, yeah, definitely. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> this is so great. <laughs> I like I like when I get validated for being long-winded because it's <laughs> yeah. not. No, but you're talking about interesting things. You're yeah. not just like ranting. And you're thorough, you know? which is mm-hmm. good. People need to hear that. And sometimes it means we do um, episodes that are a little longer. But I think that there's this is this has more content and, and sustenance versus you know. Um, cool. Definitely. Well, that was it. I mean, we talked. You like covered amazing content. And I so talk a lot, and that's a resource. No, it's great so stuff. All good for stuff, stuff like this, yeah. Yeah. it's not a resource for my wife. She's like, shut. <laughs> up. No, but um, for this, uh, yeah, cool. Well, Thanks. thank you so much for doing this. As always, a big thank you to Brown Girl Magazine, the online magazine that helps empower young South Asian women in the United States. You can check them out at browngirlmag.com. They also have an Instagram, and they have the coolest Snapchat. They do makeup tutorials, cooking tutorials. It's very cool. We are totally on board. Follow them. Also, a big thank you to Zane for doing this episode with us. It was so great to talk to him. He is just is a ball of talent and does all these wonderful things. Make sure you check out the study that he's doing. If you're able to participate or you know somebody that can, please send it along. We have the link for that. We have the link for Narratives of Pain and his music information, all in the description of this podcast. Now, by the time that this airs, Narratives of Pain will have already happened, but you can check them out on November 11th, and I believe it's in Warren, but we will have all the information coming at you guys as soon as we know, and we'll see you there. So, if you like slam poetry, Mario Kart, or self-centered Indian girls, share this with someone you like, or don't like, someone who is hurting, or healing, or someone you want to invite to Narratives of Pain. Thanks for listening. Cheers. (laughs) Okay, perfect. (laughs) So this is a part of the game. Nope. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Fuck my life. Every time I've done it eight times. Just um. air that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Forget the rest of the interview. Summary. It's the whole thing. <laughs>